Let's start. This is Kevin Horgan, co-founder, along with Charlie Scott, of our free and open venture to bring veterans into the limelight through stories, biographies, subject matter expert interviews, leadership lessons, and sometimes ranting and raving and howling at the moon. Now, Vets Talk is a collaboration with Zach Knight and Knightley Productions and Vetlanta, a team that networks with transitioning veterans to make the Atlanta area the first choice of locations to settle in, to live, work, play, and pray, and maybe raise a family to stay connected to our tribe, the veteran community. Hi, everybody. Kevin Horgan here, Vets Talk. I want to introduce Diana Perez, former Air Force officer, who's going to tell her all about herself. Diana, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, great. So tell us why you decided to join the Air Force uh, to begin with and what your career was like. Yeah, I think I always knew that I wanted to join the military ever since I was a little kid. Uh, decided that around when I was going to college, it was a, a good time to start looking into the military. Uh, all the recruiters that I talked to, it was the height of Afghanistan and Iraq. I think they just wanted somebody to like sign up immediately. Uh, my other priority was going to college. So I decided to do the college thing first and did not sign up with the Navy or the Army, even though they called me a few times. Uh, and then once I got to the University of Georgia, uh, I decided to look into ROTC because I didn't really understand the programs, but it was there. It looked like military, uh, looked legit. So I decided to go again, talk to the Army and the Air Force. The Army, again, was very pushy, uh, wanted me to sign up right then and there. I was still not entirely sure what I was signing up for, but it sounded pretty serious. And then the Air Force said, you know, you'll, you'll take a class and then we'll see how it goes from there. I like that approach a lot more. Sometimes the hard sell is not the way to go um, or the pushy sell. Not entirely sure of what, what that is. But yeah, I went with the one class with the Air Force. And uh, from there, it kind of just snowballed into me joining uh, with ROTC. Oh, that's great. I, I was not an ROTC person myself, and I can understand the Army, when they had you in their sights, they would want to get you to sign on the dotted line. Um, and I can, I'm can i speaking freely here, and I love the Army to death. Uh, most, of, most of my friends are former Army, but the Air Force has higher standards, and they wanted to check you out, too. So yeah. tell us, what, what was your undergraduate degree in? Uh, I was a journalism major at the University of Georgia. UGA has an amazing journalism school, so I was very lucky and fortunate to be there. Uh, while I was there, I also worked uh, for the Peabody Awards, which, which are uh, very prestigious awards for media, um, and I was super lucky to be able to join in the program. And I wrote a few stories for the student newspaper, but overall, I uh, enjoyed my major very much. Uh, and at the end, I was able to get um, a good overview of journalism and mass media in general. Okay. Did you work that into your Air Force career? I unfortunately did not. Uh, the Air Force was very much about, you know, we're going to give you what we need. And uh, what they needed at that point, I guess, was acquisitions, which I did not fully understand when I got that assignment. And uh, I started off my career as an intelligence officer. So the idea was that I would go in, learn what the operations of intelligence were, and then be able to buy um, anything that intelligence uh, people would need. Okay, that sounds interesting. Where did you uh, deploy? Where, where did you serve? Uh, yeah, so I started off, went to intelligence school. Um, by the time I was going in, basically, they just wanted a overall 
good intelligence officer. So it was a long course, like seven, eight months at Goodfellow Air Force Base in San Angelo, Texas. So I was there for a little under a year. Uh, then I got lucky, went off to the UK for two years, very much enjoyed my assignment there working with the intelligence squadron. Uh, and then I did a year in Qatar, uh, Camp Cupcake, as they like to call it. <laughs> Definitely uh, probably a lot better than anything in Afghanistan or Iraq, but it still was a very challenging year for me. Uh, it was probably the most grueling year that I've had. Um, it was just a lot of like, you know, 12 hour shifts, go in, get out. Um, but I'm happy overall that I did it. And then finally ended up uh, switching over to, into acquisitions as the Air Force thought that I should um, and ended at LA Air Force Base. Okay. Um, if you don't mind me asking, why would uh, uh, Qatar, Gutter, whatever they pronounce it as, uh, beside the 12 hour shifts, I guess your free time was kind of limited too, right? You're not, you, you're not going outside and um, going to McDonald's or going and getting beer or whatever, right? Yeah, uh, it was basically restricted to staying on base. Uh, maybe once a week you could get off base. But I know for me personally, once summer hits, I did not want to like be outside at all. Mm. So I ended up keeping to myself mostly inside. Um, it was nice to be able to have the gym there and nice to, I guess I didn't make it to the pool too much now that I think about it. There was two <laughs> pools there. Um, so there were definitely amenities, but at at the end of like a 12 hour shift, I know me personally, I was just like, I just need to like go home and like relax and have me time right now. Right now. I understand. Um, did you, you made rank a captain, I guess, when you were in the air force? Yep. Um, uh, didn't do anything too crazy. So I ended up uh, staying on, <laughs> on track for rank, uh, and hit O three. 3 uh, once I was at LA air force base, because that's where I knew I wanted to end up. Uh, I decided that my time had come to start making my way out of the air force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I understand. I, uh, uh, although a different career and a different service, I had pretty much the same trajectory. Getting to 03 was very important. And the difference between a uh, first lieutenant and a captain is night and day for junior officers. But uh, lifelong service was not for me. Um, what did you, when, when you went through that process, um, how did you start it? Who did you contact? Did you have a mentor? Did you have an idea or a goal or any of those things? Just if you can express that for us. Sure. Um, so for me, I always knew that I wanted to go and do something in media again. Um, I think that's the main reason that I chose the major that I chose at UGA. Uh, so kind of given that I was in the media capital of the world at that point, um, and that was by design. Uh, by the time I was leaving Qatar, I had my top choice of where I wanted to be stationed at, and I wanted to be stationed at LA Air Force Base. Um, I started looking around to see what other people were doing. Uh, one of my co-workers, another fellow captain, was getting his MBA at UCLA. He was doing the part-time program. He told me how that was going for him, and it kind of made sense for me, too, that I would be able to go get my MBA, uh, learn about the entertainment and media business side of the industry, and then be able to get out. So uh, basically kind of given given that, uh, I took like the next two years to make sure that I was good to go, had my uh, GMAT scores up, was able to have a good application uh, submitted. And um, I was able to do that switch through a program called Reardon Programs at UCLA. Uh, which helps underrepresented minorities apply to business school. Um, 
And that was a very pivotal program for me. I very much appreciate everything that they do. Okay. Did you always intend to come back to Georgia? Did you get your uh, school, your postgraduate degree here? Uh, no. So I went to UCLA for my MBA. Uh, that was my number one choice. And very lucky again that I was able to accomplish that through a program like Reardon. Um, and I did my two years at UCLA as a full-time student. Um, I first was looking at the uh, part-time program, but just given the fact that I had the GI Bill, uh, don't have any dependents. I was kind of just on my own. It just made sense for me to go and invest in myself for two years. Right. That's a pretty prestigious program, UCLA MBA. It's not easy to get in. It's not like a factory, like the undergrad program. Yeah, no, it definitely took me a minute to get my uh, GMAT scores up. Uh, I ended up getting a tutor for that. No shame in the game. It's it's a great very large industry, unfortunately, on that. But uh, I was very happy when I was able to conquer that GMAT and get the score that I needed to apply to UCLA. Uh, it was also a challenging program. I think that's why they probably have that GMAT score so high in the first place in order to like start weeding out applicants. But um, overall, I was very much happy with that program because again, it was aligned with what I wanted to do, which was get into entertainment and media. Okay. Are you doing that today in Georgia? Uh, yep. Yeah. So I ended up interning first at Paramount Studios, uh, doing marketing for their domestic uh, films that they were releasing. I was very happy um, during those two months. It was surreal being on the lot and so certain people would show up, you know, like Tom Cruise, I think, showed up one day and everybody just kind of lost their mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would have. I definitely yeah. would have. Yeah, uh, it was right before uh, COVID and we thought we were going to release uh, Maverick at a certain time frame. That didn't happen, obviously, because of COVID. So uh, it was just something like that, that I was just, that's definitely where I wanted to be. But yeah, that was my summer internship. And then I ended up doing an internship with a startup that I'm at right now called Loop Media. And I've been with them ever since then. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. So you enjoy it, right? Um, yeah. uh, are you working remotely? I'm assuming everybody works remotely now. Yeah. So yeah, that's what happened. Uh, I started off as an intern and then we went uh, fully remote when the pandemic hit and we've been remote ever since. Okay, good, good. What advice would you give somebody that was transitioning out? An officer, a lot of people don't think officers need advice, but junior officers need a lot of direction, especially when they're transitioning out, uh, living a life of yes, sir, no, ma'am, all those things that come in with it. And all of a sudden, uh, I can only speak for myself, two, two weeks after being a captain in the United States Marine Corps, I was loading trucks in the middle of the night. So what advice would you give to a, a young transitioning officer that was looking to uh, make a mark in the world? Yeah, uh, I think I was lucky myself in the fact that I was at LA Air Force Base and we did have a lot of those uh, young officers that were transitioning out. I'm not sure on the percentages, but I know that a lot of people uh, who were transitioning and I kind of just ended up talking to them, getting their advice as to what they were doing and then uh, working off of that. Obviously, everybody's going to have a different story. Everybody has different constraints. But the more of those data points that you get, the more you're able to graph what you need and guide yourself as to what you need. Um, obviously, somebody who has a family and is transitioning out is going to be a little bit different from like me, who's like single and transitioning out. So just kind of look at that, but also just 
go out and talk to people, go out and see what other people are doing. Um, I know, I know that taps or whatever it's called now is kind of a waste of time at, at points. Uh, it's a week long program of just transitioning out, but like even something like that, I think there was, um, good advice here and there, and also a good network of people that I ended up tapping into. That's great. That's great. The, uh, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier was that there, uh, diversity in the, uh, military, specifically the officer ranks. Can you tell us, uh, good or bad experiences or anything at all? Yeah, that's actually something that I was trying to look at prior to this. Um, I didn't want to bore anybody with statistics or anything like that. Uh, as far as I was concerned, I mean, when I went in through uh, ROTC training, that summer training that we were doing, we had a flight of 20 people, uh, four of us were female. And I mean, it was just like a little different, I think, than like what the guys ended up going through, um, just because it was a smaller number. Uh, and just because like, those three ladies were like my roommates, there was like no other way getting around it. I think the guys were able to switch up their roommates every now and then. Um, Another thing that I noticed is that like when I came in, I came in like right at the end, tail end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So when I commissioned, it was Don't Ask, Don't Tell was still a thing. And I ended up having to sign something that said like, you know, I'm not going to tell if nobody asked. Um, it was a little weird because it ended up being like the same paper five times that they wanted me to sign. And I was just like, I think I've already signed this. So it was a little uncomfortable for me to to sign that paper in the first place. Uh, didn't end up signing the other four copies, but again, it was just something that like stayed in my mind. Um, and I don't know, once the don't ask, don't tell went away, the world did not burn, the sky did not fall. Uh, the military was able still to get through uh, and complete its mission. So I, yeah, I ended up seeing a little bit of uh, resistance there with a couple of people telling me that like, don't ask, don't tell should have stayed there. I obviously don't agree on that. But um, yeah, it's unfortunate that that resistance was there in the first place. It is something that to a certain extent like hurt me that people would say that. But at the end, kind of got to move forward with uh, my mission as well. Uh, and then lastly, I would just say Hispanic representation. Um, I think it could be better as far as in the officer ranks. Uh, I know that like as we were getting up in rank towards... Uh, generals it was not in line with the diversity in the united states so i think that's something that could be uh bolstered as well so there's work to do there but what i ended up seeing is that the military is willing to do that work and at the end of the day again the mission comes first you know i i agree with all your points i think that's great i can speak uh, i served a generation before you i was uh, post vietnam 79 to 84 uh, there was no don't ask, don't tell policy. Um, uh, it's just some terrible circumstances sometimes, uh, blackmailing young Marines uh, with pictures. And then it would have to go through the old NIS, Naval Investigative Service, which became NCIS uh, 20 years later. But it was a shame because it's really irrelevant. Uh, as, you know, and I, I want to mention this. I don't know how it worked out with your OCS or uh, your, uh, I guess you went to ROTC and then you got commissioned and you went right to your uh, standard schooling. Uh, I had, I went to an OCS in 1979, and that was the first integrated Marine Corps officer OCS 
and then basic school class for uh, which is three months of officer boot camp and six months of everything from map reading to weapons training to you know how to hold a fork and you know put ribbons on uniforms. We had about 15% of our class were female. I'm telling you right now, half of those women, I would have charged into hell following them. They were they were wonderful people. They were great officers. I'm still in touch with several of them today, uh, with a lot of those people that I served with back then. You know, and like I said, we weren't special, but uh, you know, you you, you you develop some great bonds. Now, can you give me an example, if you don't mind, Diana? <clears throat> give me an example of a great leader that you remember and an example of a leader and don't use any names, right? <laughs> an example of a, of someone that you learned how not to do something. Yeah. I think one of the quotes that stayed in my mind very early on, and it actually came from uh, ROTC is that people don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, somebody that early on in my career at my first duty station kind of showed that is uh a captain who was leading my flights, um, she just, she showed us how much she cared and she was on top of things. And she knew certain minutia that I, as a young Lieutenant sometimes was just like, whatever, we can just like skim over this. And she was <laughs> like, no, let's, the details are very important. And that's where, you know, the devil lies in the details. I guess that's why it's right. a cliche. Um, but yeah, she, she ended up showing me how much it is important to be, to care for other people. Um, I know that sounds very cuddly and cute, um, probably not very military-like, but I don't know, it was something that made a big difference to me. Um, and especially in the military, because you you are like a GI, right? You're, you're a government issue. Um, and at least on the base that we were working at, which was an NSA base, it was, if you weren't at work by like 30, 30 minutes into your shift, we had to call the police to make sure that like everything was okay and that like nothing had gone afoul. Um, so just being on top of people or not on top, but <laughs> caring for people and showing how you care for them, I think really goes a long way. I, I, I agree. Um, uh, put another way, it's people will always forget what you say, but they will never forget how you make them feel. Yeah. And uh, now that wasn't Marine Corps training, right? <laughs> Marine Corps training was all about the mission. Uh, but one of the things they did teach us was, uh, as officers, you have to be mission-centric. That has to be your focus. Your sergeants, if they're any good, will bring all the Marines back, all right? That's their job, is to accomplish the mission and make sure their Marines survive. Um, and if you respect those lines, you'll be successful. Uh, yeah, it was... Uh, uh, I, I, I thank you for serving. A lot of people, it's just such a small minority of people think uh, that it's necessary to do. Uh, you you expressed it was not a lifelong calling for you, but it was something you felt strong about. You felt compelled to do. And I, and I appreciate that. I think more people should be able to serve. Now, we don't want standards lowered, but I don't know if you heard this. And I'd like you to comment if you don't mind. But the, the recruiting goals for almost all the services, except for the Marines, by the way, almost all the services, certainly the Navy and the Army, uh, they're not meeting their goals. And as a result, they are lowering certain standards and certain requirements. Um, do you see any, any of that or did you see any of that or have you heard any of that or could, would you care to comment? Just want to, can I take a minute? Yeah, sure. 
I guess my where my initial thoughts go is that standards are probably going to change and evolve as society changes and evolves. Obviously, you don't want to lower anything to the point where somebody needs to do something and they're not able to do it because of the, that standard hasn't been met. But at the same time, um, I read a New York Times story a couple months ago uh, about how SEAL training is so hard to overcome and it's so hard to uh, complete. But one of the things that stood out in my mind on that one was that they don't really have a lot of oversight and I'm not trying to get the SEALs uh, to go against me, but I think something like that, training needs to have that oversight just like everything else in the military has a lot of oversight. Um, so I think something for standards of training is just having that oversight to make sure that those standards are, are being met and that they're being kept at where they need to be. But yeah, I think they're going to evolve as we end up evolving as a society as well. You know, I, I, I think that's very well said. Um, even in, I was at the recruit depot in San Diego in 83 and 84, um, uh, you know, well before you were born, uh, but I was there and we had an SOP that was 900 pages long. We were not allowed to use foul language in front of the recruits. Uh, we're not allowed to touch them incidental to training. The And I lost some drill instructors who couldn't follow the rules, uh, but those are rogues. Those people are outsized. And this is, I'm talking over the, the expanse of over 40 years uh, that, there, that the scrutiny to training has always been very, very high. Um, but uh, there is always going to be an element of, um, you mentioned the devils in the details. Well, sometimes the devil's right there in front of us. <laughs> and we it, it has to be uh, called out and it has to be removed. But uh, overall, I think our armed services do a great, de great deal of good work. The, um, and now it sounds like I'm on a soapbox, but the, the old grunt, um, is still a requirement. We'll always need boots on the ground somewhere, but warfare is changing with drones. It's changing with technology. Uh, we don't need people to do a thousand push-ups or run up a hill with a log anymore. Uh, at least we don't need everybody to be able to do that. We need people that are adept at the technology and that can exercise good judgment in a heated environment and remain cool and calm. Uh, and I, I think if the military goes in any direction like that, it's going to somebody that can scrutinize facts well and stay cool, even when they're not under fire, but someone else is. I, um, Diana, tell me, uh, let's have a parting shot. What else would you like to share with our audience? Uh, you've been a delight to be on here. Uh, just tell us if there's anything else that you'd like to uh, discuss or say or proselytize for that matter. Uh, for me, my Air Force experience was a very pleasant one. Uh, I don't think that I can speak for everybody, but I think I can speak for myself in saying that uh, I feel like I made the right choice in going out into the world with uh, with the Air Force. And I really did get to see a lot of the world with them. Uh, again, I was, was stationed in the UK, then Qatar. And I ended up seeing a lot of things that I don't think the average 25-year-old ends up seeing. Um, I understand that like sometimes it's not going to be for everybody. And again, we do need people to meet certain standards. Uh, but I would just say to anybody who is considering a military or joining the military, um, yeah, <laughs> take it, 
take it seriously. Yeah. Uh, do it sooner rather than later because you do have those standards and you do have to meet certain age requirements uh, and see where it takes you. I, I, I think that's wonderful. I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the leap. I wish more people would, more people like you would decide to say, all right, I can do it. I can take a cup of coffee in the Air Force or the Marines or the Air Force. Um, well, maybe it's a little more than a cup of coffee in the Marines, but at least just take the leap, take a chance. And really what you're gambling on is yourself. And it yeah. seems like you're a very confident person. I wish you all the luck in the world. I think that 30 years from now, you're going to look back and you say, you know, I'm so glad I was in the Air Force as an officer. It made all the difference in the world. And I think you're part of the fabric of America that makes it so great. Thank you very much for joining us, Diana. I do appreciate it. Um, and we'll uh, talk to you next time on Vets Talk. All right. Thank you so much for the time. <laughs>